Amen. You can grab a seat. Glad you're here today. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here, and today we're going to be in Luke chapters 1 and 2. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn, or a digital copy, you can tap your way to Luke 1 and 2 so you can see what we're reading, maybe look at it some this week and see um, if anything we talk about today resonates with you. There, uh, of course, are people that maybe don't have access to a modern English Bible. We'd love to give you one, but if you don't have one this morning, we're going to have those words on the screen for you, uh, and that might be an easier way to go through it. So we have been going through this series on good guides, and it's interesting because as you read about different people in Scripture, they each give different examples. They, they are different people, and they are in different sort of circumstances throughout the Scripture story. And so as God interacts with them, He interacts with them differently. It's the same God, and He's doing the same kinds of things, but, but the situation is different, and so there's different things that sort of get highlighted. The person I want to think about today models a couple of things that we don't have any way that we can like replicate. But she, she models some things that I think, as a culture, we're not doing great with. Let me just ask you, what, what is your diet when it comes to your mind? What kind of things do you make sure that you always do or never do when it comes to what you're putting into your mind? I don't know how often you ask that question. I think people have in their head that they should be reading or they want to be the kind of person who reads. It's summertime, so you know, you ask friends because you want to have some novel that you can say that you read. Maybe you have a Bible reading plan, and so you're thinking certain things or reading certain things on a daily basis. I think that's great. But I don't know how often we do that, and I definitely don't know how often we think anymore about, like, censorship. Ooh. You don't want to be the square that brings this up, but I don't know how often you read like content warnings before you watch what you watch or think about what you think about. You know, when you think about your physical diet, there's evidences of what your physical diet is, right? Like the donuts are, are wonderful, and I hope guests like use donuts as a reason to come back. Great, you know, but they're a problem for us that are like here and get here early and the donuts are there and you say no, you know, but then you walk by them again and again and again and eventually... You say yes. You just hope you don't say yes too many times. But if you have bad decisions from a physical diet, you have things that happen, right? And as you get older, your doctor will tell you things you maybe don't want to hear. Or your wife for a birthday present will get you a really nice scale. <laughs> happened to me a couple years ago. Still working on that. But if you have a mental diet that's trash, what happens? The Proverbs say, to keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Keep your heart with all diligence. Out of, out of it is flowing. Streams of life. I, are we being very diligent there? I, I think we're not. And we're in a weird spot where I don't know that human history has ever had this much access to content. Like the things that you're experiencing are multimedia. You're not alone with a book. You're, you're usually watching something that is moving and with sound. It's got music and high production value. It's, it's hitting you. And you can have that kind of content input 24-7. I mean, how often do you go anywhere and not see people with earbuds in? 
It's become like a thing. Now earbuds have the like um, invisibility mode or whatever, where people can actually hear you better with the earpod in, but they're not really hearing you. They're not listening to you. I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm nervous for when that happens with my kids. It's impossible to think of, of how you could have too much more content coming in. Well, what are we doing with it? Do we have a good idea of how we're defending ourselves well? Are we being diligent? With, are we having village, uh, vigilance with what we allow ourselves to take in? I, I think you also are in a place now where highly sophisticated algorithms and AI are motivated by financial concerns and really giant companies to keep you consuming content. Um, I, I don't know how much you read about this kind of stuff. A, a Christian named Chris Martin wrote a book called Terms of Service. It's super, super helpful if you want like a shorter kind of a book to think about on it. But he says, social media platforms are all made of the same stuff. Engaging content served to you for the purpose of modifying your behavior. And before we get to conspiracy theory E, I don't think it's necessarily modifying your behavior to like Manchurian candidate you into killing a president, but I do think it's trying to modify your behavior so that you stay on the platform and view more ads and create more revenue. Uh, a guy that's quoted by that Chris Martin in another book called The Shallows, a writer named Nicholas Carr says, the net's interactivity gives us powerful new tools for finding information, expressing ourselves and conversing with others. And... It turns us into lab rats, constantly pressing levers to get tiny pellets of social or intellectual nourishment. Ha, ouch. Uh, but I think helpful. As you think about this, I want you to think for a moment about how scary this is for the innocent. You think about your very young that you know or your very old that you know that aren't really ready for this kind of thing to be coming in at the quantity and at the level that it's coming. That's scary to me. All right, that's for the innocent. Now think about the guilty. Think about you. Like you know that you are taking in stuff that's not helpful to you. How is that going? What are your rules? How do you stick to them? What do you do instead? What do you dwell on? Now, the person we're going to talk about today is Mary, and Mary was the person who God used to bring Jesus into the world. She was a Jewish woman that God used miraculously to bring Jesus into the world. And I think when we think about Mary, we think about Christmas time and we think about the incarnation, and sure. But if you read about Mary, what's emphasized about her are other qualities as well. Now, let's, let's talk about her for a second, but, but as we're talking about her, I want you to think about her ability or her quality of dwelling on the things that God does around her and in her. See, the last time we talked, we were talking about Jeremiah, and Jeremiah's, uh, his ministry is taking place at the, the dissolving, the dissolution of, of Judea as God allows sort of that whole nation of Israel, northern and southern kingdom, to finally be dissolved. And we have other prophets. There's things that are happening. The people come back. They build a second temple. And there's things that happen with Nehemiah and, and, and Ezra. But they come into a period of silence where God then stops speaking through prophets. And there's about a 400-year period where there's just no word from the Lord. And then... We get this interaction. In, in the Gospel of Luke, he begins talking about Gabriel coming to speak. And coming. this Gabriel person is an angel 
who's in the presence of God. So he's not just like some kind of angel out in the boonies somewhere. He's an angel that spends time in the holy presence of the holy God. And he has been sent by God as a messenger. First to this guy, Zechariah, whose wife would have John, who's going to be John the Baptist. He's a famous character here coming up. But then he goes and speaks to this girl, Mary. Mary would have been a very young Jewish girl who was engaged to an upright, a good Jewish guy named Joseph. And they're in this time where the people of Israel live kind of in and around this nation, this sort of new empire of Rome. And as a subjugated people, they still have their customs, but they haven't heard God speak in 400 years. And then an angel named Gabriel speaks to her. And this is what he says in Luke 1, verse 28 and following. Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying. I love that kind of language where it's like <laughs> just real like blasé kind of taupe flavored language. But you can imagine her going, ha, ah! right? Well, yeah, an angel just spoke to her and said she was a favored one and the Lord is with her. She's greatly troubled at the saying. She's trying to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel says to her, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. When he says this, and she's scared and trying to figure out what's happening, she then replies. And she has a good question, and the question is a math question. She says, okay, but I'm still a virgin, so how is that going to work? And Gabriel says it's going to happen miraculously, that the Holy Spirit is going to make this miracle happen. It's, going to, it's not going to be some weird physical experience. It's going to be a, a miracle. And then he tells her about other miraculous births that are taking place in her family. She knows old Elizabeth in her family. And poor Elizabeth has had the misfortune, especially in that culture with everything they added to infertility, of, of being barren, of not being able to have children. Mary goes and visits her and finds that Elizabeth and Zechariah are kind of reliving the Abraham and Sarah experience of being very old and then finding out <laughs> we need a baby shower. Or like, we're having a baby. What? And G Mary, as she gets there, finds that that miracle that God said would happen through Gabriel, Gabriel told Mary that Zechariah and Elizabeth would go from barren to having a baby, even in their old age bears out. It, it, it helps her to have that much more faith in the miracle that's going to take place where God is going to put Jesus in her. Now, she sees Elizabeth's miracle pregnancy. She submits to the radical calling that God gives her. And, and I think we can understand that that calling is a blessing, but also kind of a mixed bag socially. Because I don't know what you would think but apparently most of the people, when they heard that Mary was pregnant, did not go, oh, like, miraculously? <laughs> you know, like, they assumed there was other reasons that Mary might be pregnant. And yet she submits to God's plan. She has the baby. They're still poor as dirt. And she now is looking down on the Savior of the world bouncing on her knee. Now, in some of this, uh, she's pretty passive, 
You know, Gabriel declares what God's going to do. God decides what he's going to do. The Holy Spirit miraculously puts this baby inside her and the baby grows and then she goes through this labor. But she is also a model of incredible obedience and submission to God's will. Something that I think we need more than anything else, that, that concept of submission, that we want to submit to God's will. We want to regularly be putting our pride to death. Then she also models something that I think gets back into that concept of dwelling in that she seems to really enjoy and weigh, to really make mental processes around what God has done, to think carefully about, to weigh these things in her heart. And it says that multiple times. Anytime you have something about a character that's said multiple times in Scripture, there's something that you should sort of tune into. It says... That once the shepherds, and if you remember Christmas time, when there's this announcement of Jesus' birth, there's announcements made in different places, but one of the ones that's made is to these shepherds. The shepherds come and they, they find Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus, and they talk about this vision that they've had and these angels that spoke to them. And it says in Luke 2, verses 18 and 19, all who one heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them, in her heart. You fast forward and we get like one story about adolescent Jesus in the four gospels and it's this story in Luke. But at the end of chapter two, when they go to Jerusalem, they're on their way back and they find that Jesus has stayed in Jerusalem. And so they go running back into the city to try and find their lost child and they find that he's in the temple speaking with the religious leaders and they're all awed by the questions that he's asking and the answers that he's giving. And Mary says, how in the world are you doing this to us? What, son, why would you put us through this level of stress? If you're going to hang out and kind of wow all the temple people, I think I would like to see that. Why wouldn't you let me know and I could watch as your proud mother? But Jesus responds to her. Uh, and Mary said, behold, oh, I'm sorry, excuse me. Uh, verse 51 of chapter 2. And we, After they interact, Jesus goes down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. So Mary's modeling something for us here. There's something about all these experiences which she is participating in, but she's not active in in the same way. I, I, I want to emphasize that because there's other traditions that put Mary into a, a place that the Bible doesn't. She's submissive to things that are big that are happening around her. But, but she's modeling for us something really interesting. She is modeling this kind of submission and obedience. It says in verse 38 of chapter 1, Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She does do what we all should be doing. And she sings about it. I think this is really beautiful. At Elizabeth's house, as she walks in and sees this miraculous birth that's taking place or, or, or pregnancy that's taking place with Elizabeth, her baby... She tells about Elizabeth about her baby, and the baby in Elizabeth's belly jumps. And Mary is so overwhelmed by what's taking place and what she has been dwelling on that she begins to sing. She sings this song that the church has always called the Magnificat from, or Magnificat from, uh, from the Latin. But, but it's this beautiful song that she gives. She's starting to understand something wonderful and producing something wonderful. So, so we're focused on her heart. We're focused on her attitude. But she played a massive role in the story of redemption. 
It's kind of hard to talk about Mary and not for a second dwell on a little bit of the fact of this virgin birth. What it says about God's plan of salvation is that he has saved us by becoming one of us. The fact that Jesus was born by a woman means that he has the full deity of being God, but also the full humanity of this person that is his mother. It says, too, that, that it allows Christ to be truly human without inheriting human sin. But, but a third kind of very important thing that it says that I think is really important is that it shows that salvation comes from God, not from us. If you're going to notice anything else about this virgin birth situation, notice the direction of the action. This isn't something that Mary does that God then rewards. This is something that God does that Mary submits to. Salvation doesn't come from humanity up to God as this very impressive thing that he rewards us for. Salvation comes from God down to humanity who receive it as a gift. Now, if we're looking at all this and we're trying to understand it, let's be really clear about what we're not going to do. <laughs> There's lessons to be learned from Mary, but let me just go ahead and release all the ladies in the room. Uh, you don't have to do what Mary did. This is a one-time kind of obedience. You're not going to be called upon in that way. And student ministry, uh, don't try a virgin conception. You know, like, let's talk about other things. Let's make wise decisions with our bodies. And yet, what we do have from Mary that is replicatable, that is something that's going to happen in our world, is this level of humility and this level of dwelling on what God has done. And that's what I want us to do. I want to think of it three different ways. I want us to, to enjoy, I want us to think, and then I want us to express. I think Mary does all three of these things. First, we are to enjoy. Her heart is engaged with what she's thinking about and enduring. There's a, 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 so C.S. Lewis, this writer from the last century, was very impacted by the writing of this guy named Samuel Alexander. He's a, a philosopher out of Australia. But he wrote a book called Space, Time, and Deity. And he talked about the two ways that we interact with the world, with the, the word enjoy and the word contemplate. What he meant was that, that you can experience something, but experiencing that thing is not the same as thinking about the thing. That you experience a hamburger, but that's not the same as later thinking about a hamburger. You can experience love. That's not the same as thinking about love. And for Lewis, this was a big deal. It helped him to kind of break apart that sort of weird thing that we do sometimes where we really try and constrict God to like give us an experience again by the way that we think or like this pattern that we go through. No, no, no. The experience comes from something and thinking about it is a totally different thing. If you look across the sort of landscape of Protestant Christianity, you get people that are really emphasizing the contemplate piece of it and you get to people that are really contemplating or um, I'm sorry, really uh, over the top with the experience part of it, the enjoy part of it. Now, as a church, I think we fall a little bit in the middle. We're not really the frozen chosen, and we're not really the happy clappies, but we like to clap. Some of us are really happy, and some of us are really thoughtful and brainy and nerdy and maybe a little bit rude. So if you put all of us into a bucket as an average, we kind of float middle-ish, but what I want to emphasize is what I think we should emphasize, which is that enjoy peace, that experience peace. We have brothers and sisters that may do that in a way that we don't always think is wise, but the principle there is beautiful. 
God is not an idea. God's a person. Your relationship with Him is not a math problem. Your relationship with Him is a date night. What He is doing with the way that the gospel works and the way that the Word works and the way that He gives you His Holy Spirit and fills you with His Holy Spirit is inviting you into an enjoyment, an enjoyment of an experience of who He is. So when we talk about dwelling, when we talk about the things that God does in and around you, I, I want you to be really careful here not to go too far into the just contemplate mode. And we've got to get to a place where we really do enjoy things about the Lord. I want you to think about a command like Paul gives in Romans 12, where he tells us to rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. But the first phrase there, rejoice in hope. You have a command that's in the imperative to have an emotional reaction to something really, really good that you're thinking about. Do you understand? I think that that's a very merry kind of a command. Brothers and sisters, is this something that we are doing? Are you, as a people, good at this? Do you have emotional reactions to the things that take place in your walk with the Lord? Doesn't have to be characterized by emotion all the time. There's going to be fallow periods. I get it. But is it a possibility? Or is your relationship with the Lord something that you don't really think about too much? You know, you come here and there's emotional experiences, but you could maybe explain it by musicality. You could maybe explain it by relationships and community. Are you enjoying the Lord? Uh, I think this is... Um, Maybe a phrase that gets used sometimes. They talk about somebody being too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. But Mary, contemplating the things of God, giving herself to what God is doing around her and in her, made her very heavenly minded and meant that she did something that none of us are going to come close to replicating. By being the person who gave uh, this opportunity for God to come into the world. She was very heavenly minded and she reacted in a way that was really beautiful. I, I, I referenced it briefly. I don't know if you're the kind of person that skips over the poetry and the songs in scripture, but please don't. When Mary starts to sing in Luke chapter one, she sings a song that is just as important and just as impactful as the Psalms that David wrote or the song that Moses sang as they came out of the Exodus. She begins this song that says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. I don't know. I mean, she was a young, poor Jewish girl. I don't think she went to poetry school. And yet she wrote something that will be read and has been read for millennia, treasured by believers and says something that doesn't just affirm God and his holiness, but as you continue reading through, affirms God and his provision for those who fear him, a fact that she would really need to rely on in the things that were about to happen to her, about his exaltation of the humble and his humbling of the proud. She goes from a girl with a wild experience to a follower of God with a rapidly expanding understanding in this one song of God's work around her through Israel and to the world forever. It's expansive. It's something that we have to engage with. 
So we want to enjoy, but we also need to think. In another place, Paul tells us to take every thought captive. This sermon is about dwelling on the Lord. That's a very positive idea. We're going to be thinking about something good. But do you understand that there are sins of the mind as well as sins of like action? That what takes place in your, between your ears can be like horrific and things that you will be accountable to God for? Like envy isn't something that always takes place on the outside. I think envy is something that usually takes place on the inside. Uh, I don't know how often you're judgmental of people and you can communicate that with like, you know, eyebrows and you can communicate that with snide jokes and whatever, but you can also just feel that on the inside. Is it any less true? Jesus talks about how anger and lust are the same as and similar to sins as actual adultery and actual murder are. Some of you are like mass serial killers. You're just walking down the hall smiling, and the kill count is just flowing because everyone around you is infuriating. And everybody says, no, this is a godly guy. Maybe he's a little intense. But then you read what Jesus said, and you realize that the sins of the mind, the sins of the heart are graphic. You know, we're going to talk about this thing we're going to be doing where we're going to have a big party at Big Bear Park. We're going to invite a bunch of people in that community to come and just give out snow cones. The thing we do in the summer and I've done snow cones, so I'm just going to tell you. When you do snow cones, it's possible in that moment of doing ministry and serving the community for the sake of God and the gospel, for you to just be annihilating people, for you to be furious at people, to be furious and judgmental about people in the way that they parent, to notice that somebody's wearing less than, than maybe makes it easy for you to not lust. All the while, you're handing out these snow cones with sugar on top so that people can hear the gospel. And on the inside, what's taking place? That's a big deal. We have to take every thought captive. We need to think well. And man, as we start to do those, we can bring both of them together and begin to express. Now, I, I talk about evangelism, or we talk about evangelism, and usually people kind of tighten up because it's similar to prayer and that you know you're supposed to, but it's, it's not something that you do well or have done well. I don't know how often you're inviting people into your home. I don't know how often you're trying to start conversations with people that are going to lead to you declaring Jesus, knowing that they're going to get weird about that, that it's going to make things awkward in your relationship. But evangelism is something that we're commanded. And in fact, if the like final command of Jesus gets any more airtime as the like big final word, then ah, the final word he gave us was evangelism. Go and make disciples. That great commission is what he says as he's ascending into heaven. And then you think about how you're actually going to do that and you get into kind of those sort of those two extremes again. You either get into the really argumentative sort of angry extreme of like, all right, if I'm going to talk, it's going to get really nasty, and so I've got to really do my math and do my homework. And so you start doing a ton of reading, and you start trying to get real apologetic, or at least you tell yourself that until you do those things, you can't share the gospel, and so you just never end up speaking. Or you start really trying to serve people and really start trying to love people, but you get into these relationships with these people and you can't imagine ever hurting the relationship as you know sharing the gospel would. Well, let's step back a little bit. 
What do we mean when we talk about evangelism? We certainly don't mean less than those things. Yes, you're supposed to serve people, and yes, you're supposed to do your homework and be able to speak the gospel that God's given and, you know, respond to false gospels that you hear from the world. But one thing that may make it easy, or at least it gets you going in evangelism, is when you're dwelling on the things of God and you can begin to speak about what God has done for you. So here's your kind of work for this week. All this mental stuff, I'm hoping we're going to at least want to do better with guarding our hearts and with taking every thought captive and enjoying the Lord and thinking about Him. But, but here's like some real like homework assignment type stuff you can do. This week, take half an hour to write a two-paragraph story of how God has impacted your life. Just answer the question. It can be elevator pitch. You can just say, okay, I've got two paragraphs here. But what would I say to somebody who said, well, what's God like for you? What's been your experience of the divine? You seem like a religious person. What, what has been your interaction with God? Can you answer that in two paragraphs? I would like for you to try to. I would like to get you into a place where you can express what God has done in you and what we might call a testimony so that you can express to somebody else the goodness of God towards a very normal and, and sinful person like us. For me, I mean, I, I was 13 years old, and I had a huge problem. I had lots of huge problems, but I had a huge problem specifically with lying. And I was at a, a camp, and the pastor was preaching about Ezekiel, and I don't remember exactly what he was talking about, but he was talking about God and his holiness. And in that moment, I realized that I really am a sinner before holy God, that like my lying was my attempt to take the world and shape it in the way that I wanted it to look, not the way that it actually looked. And I ran up against truth, and really truth with a capital T. My experience in that moment was one of great sin ooh, and conviction. And yet, because of what the preacher was saying and because of the truth of the gospel, I was able to understand that, no, 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 no. Yes, God is holy, and yes, you sinned against him, but he loves you, and he's paid for that sin. So I received that, and by God's grace, things have slowly been changing for me. I now know him. I'm, I'm back on his team rather than an enemy or a competitor of his. That's a short story. My story involves an awareness of sin, and anybody that comes to know the Lord has to go through that at some place. I mean, that's what Jesus says when he preaches the gospel in Mark 1. He says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent, turn from your sin language, and believe in the gospel. But your emotional experience of coming to know the Lord may not really feel a lot like conviction. It may feel more like joy. Okay, tell your story. But I want you to be able to get to a place. And the process of writing these two paragraphs is a process of dwelling. And the process of expressing these things is, again, exactly what Mary modeled for us. She didn't just sit still. She dwelled on these things, but she also sang about them. Once you write that story, I want you to try and share it with somebody. I want you to share it with the Lord first. In prayer, just ask, Lord, is this a true story? <laughs> and then share it with a friend. I like to think you're my friends. I should get a call or email at some point this week with at least one of you sharing me with me your paragraph. Share it with a friend. Let them hear it and go, ah, oh, I think I know what you're trying to say there, but it maybe sounds a little bit like heresy. So let's fix this part. <laughs> share it with a friend. And then, by God's grace, pray that you can share it with somebody that doesn't know the Lord yet. 
that thinks they know the Lord but doesn't. I mean, it's not going to be some conclusive thing where they fall to their knees, but, but maybe, and at least it starts that conversation. I don't think it's crazy for you to say, yeah, at church this week we were talking about dwelling in the Lord, thinking about Him more. And so I, I thought about kind of what God's done in my life. Can I share that with you? I know that sounds awkward, and it will be. You will be. You're not super slick. You're going to be nervous, and that's like in the water. So when you start talking to them, they're going to be like, oh, wow, this is going to be weird because they seem weird right now. But you got to get into it to get better at it. And I think that that's the model that God gives us. And as we start to experience that, you start to have an impact in the world. Nobody's going to have a bigger impact than Mary, duh. But this week I was reading a biography of C.S. Lewis, and I attended a funeral of a neighbor. And when C.S. Lewis wrote... The Pope read what he wrote. <laughs> when C.S. Lewis did a broadcast, they broadcasted it for all of the British crumbling, but empire, throughout World War II. Like, he had impact, right? My neighbor didn't. My neighbor had some health challenges. He wasn't blessed with, like, super genius level life or whatever. Just a dude. He worked at a grocery store for a really long time, and then he passed away. But when I sat at his funeral... I listened to his children talk about how he was their idol. I listened to his coworkers talk about how he was like a father to them. Well, you think he didn't have impact? He did. Now, I don't know that he was a believer, but he had impact with real people that were really around him. You are a human who has real people that are really around you. If you can learn to start to think about what God has done in your life and then just start to express it, imagine what kind of impact you can have in this world. I think God has commanded it. I know that he's modeled it. And I also think you're going to get a lot of joy out of it. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, I do ask that you help us to think this way, to really commit to it, Father. I think it's easy enough to get out of the room. I mean, nobody gets a grade on whether or not they actually do the assignments that we give them at Hope Church. But, but you're watching and you care. And Lord, the you know, artificiality of this assignment, whatever. But if we would actually sit down and write out what you've done in our lives, we would at least praise you for it. But Father, I think we would praise you for it and begin to speak about it. We could let other people know what kind of things a holy God does for a sinful humanity that he, because he's so good, loves. Lord, your, your, your son didn't just be born. He also died. He died as our atonement, as the one who would make a way for us to be brought back into relationship with a holy God, even though we're a sinful people. Next week, as we talk about Jesus as our guide, I pray that you would help us to kind of prepare our hearts for that and be ready. But in this moment, this morning, Lord, will you please challenge every person in this room to ask what they know or what they believe, what they have experienced and what they enjoy, Lord, about that Jesus. Father, please don't let us leave this room unchanged, but make us a people who see you or changed by you and then go forward and for your glory change the world. We love you, sir. We pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.